Welcome to Generation Tech. This is Todd Brinker. I'm here as always with my dad, Jack Brinker. Well, maybe not as always. You may have noticed last week we uh, put the show out on Tuesday instead of on Monday. That's because we recorded Monday, and at the end of recording, I realized that I had never hit record. And so, uh, and my backup recording app didn't catch it because it was waiting to be updated. So, yay. So anyway, my backup recording app is recording, as is my primary recording. We have this recorded. We are recording. How you doing, Dad? Doing fine, Todd. I'm glad <laughs> you did the right thing today. Oh, me too. <laughs> me too. Although, you know, didn't break my heart to talk to you twice last week. Um, well, we, but, we had a But it did time. kind of break my heart that we didn't get that one show in the can, because I felt like that was a really good show. Um, yeah, I did too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. I mean, we talked about... about Apple stuff like we often do, but we also did a little reminiscing about uh, mini computers, and you shared some of your time working with uh, HP mini computers. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, uh, prior to personal computers, which is what we generally have today, and phones, um, mini computers were multi-thousand-dollar systems that basically sat in a rack, and a computer took up a box about the size of a personal computer, maybe a little bigger. But then all of the peripherals, the um, disk drives or the anything that requ- it required to run, a lot of interfaces and stuff, were in separate boxes that were mounted in racks. And so um, what we look at as server farms today used to be a computer and its peripherals. So, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I... I agree with everything you said, except your your description of the size of mini computers. Actually, they usually were about a foot thick, although there were a few on the market that were maybe four or five inches thick. But uh, at least the ones I had from Hewlett Packard were big boxes. Really right. Big. Well, I and, and and your experience was HP. Mine were with with PDP 11s, and I say roughly the size of like a desktop computer. Obviously not today's like Apple Minis and stuff. I'm describing like a tower computer. If you took a tower computer today, which is, you know, six to eight inches wide and, you know, 16 to 18 inches deep and about 19 inches high and turned it on its side and stuck it in a rack, it's roughly the same size. I mean, it's probably still a little smaller than what mini computers were, but that's what I was describing. Most people don't even know what a tower computer is because that's... uh, business use mostly yeah yeah well gamers uh yeah. people who are big into gaming don't even use like xboxes and playstations they they buy gaming pcs and they're custom built and uh and they they still have big tower computers with cooling systems in them and um but yeah you're right there those are you know when you say the size of a computer you have to be more specific these days because most people's computers are their laptops and laptops are you know, half inch to three quarter inches thick at most, and what you know yeah. about the size of a piece of paper. <laughs> and and to put and to put that in context, back when we had mini computers, of course, then the comparison was what were called mainframes, and that meant you had right. a room full of a one or two computers in a room with air conditioning to keep it cool so it didn't melt down. <laughs> All yeah, kinds of differences. But yeah. Anyway. Well, I don't know about you. I mean, my mini computers were always set up in a computer room that had its own cooling system separate from the building because if power went out on the building, the computers would melt. They had to, you know, or if the, if their if their cooling system went down, then those computers did not stay running very long, generally speaking. Yeah. Well, 
Well, that's you're you're right. There are some uses of the mini computers that still, as you mentioned, in a rack kind of thing. But not all of them were sitting in racks. Uh, yeah. Occasionally, occasionally they'd be sitting on some kind of desktop somewhere, but taking yeah. up a lot of space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The ones that we had were we they sat in a computer room. And they had um, like a raised floor, and you could pull up tiles with these suction cups to get underneath the floor. And all of the cables that connected the different pieces together ran underneath the floor. And then air conditioning also pumped into the floor and then came up through vents in the bottom of the computer. So you'd blow cold air up into the computer from the bottom, and then the heated air would rise up and suck up the air even more. It yeah, was kind of that, an interesting convection was, system. That was really, in my view, mostly a holdover from the mainframe uh, concept. People's ideas mm-hmm. as to what you needed hadn't really changed. And, and a lot of the mini computers were self-sufficient in terms of having a fan that would keep them cool enough to operate. Uh, so, mm-hmm. But anyway, there's always transition periods. And, yeah. and the way we do things change. As, as, uh, sure, sure. So. I say most of my time with the newspapers were using um, uh, those. Con- you know, I did have. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember what the the underlying operating system was for that uh, the last computer that I used. Um, but then I do very specifically also remember when we switched when I switched to a PC based system and what a, a cacophony of garbage that was initially and took a while to get that all up and running and <laughs> and uh, and going. So yeah. Well, you know, to you a server-based system. Yeah, by, by working with DEC, you usually you really worked with the most popular mini mini computer system that was out there. Uh, yeah, the PDP eleven was my thing because of their uh, the remainder of their business in instrumentation. So anybody who mm-hmm. used a lot of their equipment, natural, like I was in the uh, mm-hmm. business of instrumenting tests, testing on yeah. Ground. More science and engineering uh, applications right. for the HP, yeah. But and I but think my, DEC was more general computing and and finance. But I had a brief period in the transition uh, where uh, I uh, I was working with uh, the Altair systems, the first microsystems that were out there from mm-hmm. uh, a company called uh, MITS, and it was in Albuquerque. Right. Ed Roberts, if any of you've heard of it, was the head of that company. Uh, and he uh, was uh, a fan of Nova. Uh, and uh, Nova was the brand of the computer, and they came from, I uh, can't remember the company's name now. But anyway, they were kind of pizza box size mini computers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, uh, it's funny you use that term too, because that's not a term that's in common use today. Mini computers were essentially, um, or I'm sorry, microcomputers. Mini computers we were talking about would be like the HPs and the DEC PDP 11s. Microcomputers was a thing that, that kind of came out, um, and those were what essentially became just called personal computers. Right, right. Well, that that's that's what. Uh, yeah, when IBM rebrand. Most people think of Apple when they think of the first microcomputers because they did come out with desktops, but but Mitch yeah. and other companies were out there ahead of Apple. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. By most counts, Mitz was the first personal computer that you could own, that, that an individual could go buy, and it was sold originally in kit form, so you had to buy the parts and assemble it, solder things onto boards, 
and build it. It was definitely a, a hobbyist's thing. Yeah, initially. they were on the front page of uh, Popular Science magazine in October mm-hmm. of, I think it was 54. Was that 74. Right? 74. 74. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't 54. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think time. that was about right. 74. That seems to be my recollection. And, uh, and my role with that computer, in addition to kind of being a consultant to Ed, because I had a lot of extensive background in the mini computer world, and uh, Ed wanted it, the, the microcomputer, to look like uh, a real computer, which at that time were mini computers, <laughs> and it, so he he insisted that we have a a bunch of switches on the front of the computer with blinking lights, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, so which I I I could not understand it all, but. You know, and, and that was because I didn't understand that he was going to sell a computer with no more than 256 bytes of memory, and yeah. you could learn how the computers work by switching your program in through these uh, switches and verifying it with the toggle lights. That was all that was all about. But it, uh, yeah. it carried on quite a long time after that, even though you got memory cards and it grew. Yeah, yeah. you set the memory register and then you hit the enter, enter toggle and then you set the memory register and hit the enter toggle, right? Right, yeah. That's how you so. entered things directly into memory. By the way, I'm looking at, um, I, I did a quick Google of it, I'm looking at the, the cover page. It was January of 1975. Uh, you sure? Yep, I'm looking at the January 1975 World's First Mini Computer Kit to rival commercial models, the Alter 8800. That must have been the one that that when when they finally started shipping. But before that, there was a uh, the story goes is they actually shipped uh, one of the test models and it got lost in the mail. And then they shipped another test model to the guys uh, back east somewhere because this was happening in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and. Uh, and that that second shipped model was on a cover, and I'm sure that was in October of '74. Uh, but that wasn't a production computer, so that was not for sale then. But it basically just was an article, uh, a, a cover article that basically talked to people who were not familiar with computers at all, as uh, getting people ready to think about what you could do if you had your own computer. Uh, and so uh, there was no information at all about uh, where you could buy it and all of this. And so that was that was an ongoing discussion for the several months before they actually had a real computer that worked and and had prices and all that. Uh, uh-huh. So I I, can, I I I can't tell you what you have because I can't see the picture. But uh, if yeah, if, well I'm know. looking around and I I I've seen several different versions of because I just did a, I did a Google search for um, uh, popular electronics covers 1974 and the only thing that pops up is that January of 75 one that has a picture of the Alter 8800 which is the one I remember that cover I just didn't remember the date of it um, okay. so that was January well, of 75 there might have been some article or something that came out about it prior to that but yeah. uh, it wasn't uh, well don't need to make a big deal out of it because at my age i don't trust my memory on any specific details like that well it's ironic though too because i remember you i I seem to remember a 74 date as well i think it like you said i think it was announced in 74 but didn't ship until 75 uh 
in any real sense. Um, and, and and you you're you looked in popular electronics. Yeah, yeah. There, it might have been were, Byte. No, I, well, Byte Quarks had covered all that stuff, but that come a little later. Uh, you know, until we had there were several computers out there before Byte got in the game. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, so be it. It was a uh, it was a fun time and. Uh, an exciting world. I, I uh, might mention that I got involved mostly because uh, Ed Roberts, who was the head of MITS, the president of MITS, uh, was looking for uh, people to help him build the necessary things that he wanted to have uh, ready when when he finally had the computer on sale. And so uh, yeah. uh, I was uh, in touch with them because of uh, the, the Nova machines that he was originally going to put not as home machines but as timeshare machines that were accessible on a local telephone company's network in major cities and then he was selling terminals which at that time were old teletype machines and of course the big news of the day about that was uh, the uh, people who built the teletype machines they sold uh, a whole bunch of them to Ed Roberts at uh, wholesale price, and Ed resold those to the customers at resale price. I mean, maybe included a little bit more to Ed cover his shipping, but mm-hmm. oh man, talk about a company going up in arms! They couldn't sell them anywhere else because Mitts cap- suddenly captured the market, but at no profit to all of the other businesses that were trying to sell teletype machines. Yeah. <laughs> So he was like, well, that, that was a no, no. Of course, Ed didn't know that. He didn't care if he made any money. He just wanted to have people using his timeshare system. Yeah. So anyway, uh, and, and my my role in that timeshare system was I took the uh, the basic timeshare system that came with the Nova machine and uh, made it work. First of all, it was a, out there, but it was so buggy, it was useless. And uh, I completely reverse engineered the whole thing to get it back to something. So I knew what the code was and went through it and found a number of things and fixed it. We got it working, so we really had a working timeshare. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and and anyway, as a consequence of my success there, Ed hired me to build a uh, the first or, or some code that went out with every one of his uh, his uh, mitts. Mini com- or microcomputers uh, systems, which uh, were called Altair uh, 8800s. Altair 8800s, yep. And uh, based on the Motorola 800 chip. So. And, and with that, there was this little, I hate to call it, we called it a system monitor instead of an operating system to, to let you know that it's an extremely minimal piece of operating uh, mm-hmm. system, but. Uh, and uh, and it was there only to support the assembler, which was what the the, the initial language that hobbyists wanted uh, mm-hmm. when you play in with a machine and you're toggling in codes. And it took up very little space in the machine, uh, so that uh, I mean you couldn't do it in that 256 byte machine. That that was your own machine language toggling in. But within that first year, we had the assembler going uh and that came out with the 1k boards when they were first announced so you had a a thousand bytes wow <laughs> crazy space 
and it, and it fit in there with a little tiny bit of space for the actual program code that you wanted to disassemble or to assemble. Uh, so it was uh, a totally machine-based system. And at that mm -hmm. point, you know, uh, you were actually loading the assembler with a teletype machine. You needed some kind of device. But then quickly yeah. they came out with little readers to read the, read the paper tape. Yeah, assembler. super hobbyists. For the people who don't know, paper tape was literally that. It was a roll of paper that had holes punched in it. So um, people have seen like the punch cards that some early computers used. That was a way of of tracking ones and zeros for those computers on a, on cards. This was a roll of sequential dots in a tape, and they literally punched holes in the tape. And so there was a little yeah. little uh, when they were printing paper tape, there was like confetti dots all over the place and these things were i don't know maybe a sixteenth of an inch in diameter little tiny circles all over the place <laughs> yeah it was about uh three quarters of an inch wide the tape was and yeah. across that that piece of tape were what were referred to as bites they were eight holes or potentially eight holes and uh seven of which were data and the other the last one was because there were so many errors in reading those systems, it was called a checksum, uh, which was a technique for creating that byte either being on or off to as a, mm -hmm. uh, to to know whether you had a valid byte or not. And if there was a if the checksum mm -hmm. didn't read back correctly, then you had a wrong an erroneous byte. You uh, either reread the whole thing or it stopped there. Whatever you wanted to do, yeah. but. Yeah, Lots well, it's just a way of trying to ensure that the data was being read correctly in what was inherently an untrustworthy system. Yeah, yeah, very unreliable readers and writers. But that was that was true for only a short period of time. Mm -hmm. But got but better still. when they went from mechanical readers with little pins that poke through the holes to optical readers. Those that got better and faster. Yep, but still, the production process for the tape had to be something that punched the holes so you yeah. know that could have errors there too at yep. least you reduced errors at the read side of it so. yep well that's why we eventually went to magnetic tapes and magnetic discs and then optical discs and and now solid state storage and you know time yep. marches on right yep so um, it's funny how that stuff all evolves but it's interesting to hear about, you know, the, the very early days of it. And people look at that and go like, why on earth would anybody want one of those computers? They did basically nothing. But <laughs> it was it was the people who were excited about what they Technology. saw they could do at some point, you know. Right. And, and yep. so there were people, people, you know, of that era would sit and spend hours toggling in codes or 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 getting lines of code from a magazine that somebody else had written and hand manually typing it in to make sure that it worked. And if any, you know, you type one character wrong or one thing, one little bit out of place, then the whole thing failed. But then you'd go back and you'd try it again, you know, until you got it so you could see how it worked to say, hey, yep. look, this computer does something. Because um, it was exciting that this machine could could think and do things. And, 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 you know, by processing those ones and zeros, we could make it do exciting and different things. And... Uh, you know that well, wonder, that that sense of excitement and wonderment seems to be gone from um, from this arena these days. You know, 
Well, it, it isn't really, because what really was driving the microcomputer industry was price. You had to get the price down so that people could afford it. It was the first personal computer, that meaning it was affordable by a, an individual. No one went out and bought their own little mini computer because that was, you know, first of all, uh, very expensive by the time you got any peripherals or anything mm -hmm. it was useful for. So that, uh, but, mm -hmm. but at least the mini computer experience uh, had developed the paper tape readers and lots of other things that ultimately uh, flowed down to the micro thing only in a much more cost-effective way. You know, people were in a hurry mm -hmm. then to adapt to the new environment, low-cost environment. Yeah. And, and you were talking, course, you know, a thousand, a thousand of dollars for a microcomputer versus tens of thousands of dollars for a mini computer versus hundreds of thousands of dollars for a mainframe computer. Yeah, of, of course you can go out and buy a computer today for one or two hundred dollars. Now you're not not getting much for that, but that's there's always a market for mm -hmm. low cost devices. If you're really serious well, about it, you might spend a thousand or more. Yeah, although it's ironic you say that that two hundred dollar computer that doesn't seem like it's getting much is so much more powerful than than every oh. computer we've talked about thus far. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and, I can go buy a, a fifty dollar smartphone with more computing power than than these things had. Yeah, and and the excitement's still there, especially for young kids who this is their first computer, what whatever it is, you know. Uh, there's a, a lot of things to learn and and uh, make it do and before you can see how if you if you started to get involved in programming in some way although most of the machines today aren't oriented toward the actual coding like they were in the early days but uh, there's still some out there that kids can buy yeah. and learn learn to code their their computer uh, yeah so well and and quite honestly the big trend behind things like um, um, oh shoot what's the name of the uh, game that's like virtual legos i'm blanking on the name of it um but the idea that it's a toolkit that you can then build worlds and things with um you know it is is oh. you know oh, there's a lot of a child's language is what you're saying Something no kind of i'm of trying to think of there's a game and i'm blanking on the name of it now minecraft minecraft oh, yeah. is is hugely popular and if you look at the kids who are using it and playing it you know, they're sharing ideas online about like, you know, hey, I built this and I built, you know, they're building virtual worlds. There's been people who have built virtual virtual computer chips with gates and 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 memory uh, just by building it in Minecraft. So within Minecraft, they've built a virtual computer. Mm hmm. Yeah. You know, and it's just how much do you want to dig into it? Because it's 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 basically, you know a toolkit for building things and what you build is totally up to you. And so there's a lot of excitement around that and in, in the people that like doing it, you know? Yep. So, so it's, so when I said excitement, I just meant there's not excitement in the same way there was then, you know, and, and because there hadn't been a, uh, any coalescing around a particular computer in the early days, it was like, you know, you, you were a fan of, of the Altar because that's the one you know that you might have, but somebody else might have had 
uh, you know, one of the competitors' computers. And, and, and it wasn't that they were like the enemy. It wasn't like, you, it was like, oh, cool, what's that one doing? How does it work that's different than this one? And very often, you know, you couldn't buy more than one computer because they were still expensive. And so you, you had one and you learned and played, but you were very interested in what all the others were doing and, and who, who had, you know, pushed the technology envelope a little further in an affordable way. Yep. yep. So, anyway, thank you for sending me that uh, page of, from Popular Electronics. Uh, it occurred to me that that the, uh, uh, and in fact, from looking at the picture of the Altair here, that this was not the first model. There was another magazine that, that had the first model in the October issue. It wasn't this one. Mm -hmm. And that's why you didn't find it there. Uh, I, I'm not sure how you'd look for the other one, but uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty convinced this wasn't the one that you're showing me here. Was just from the from the front panel, and and I can't remember the distinguishing marks for sure. But anyway, uh, yeah. Well, I just sent you a picture of what the one that, that. Well, I just I just sent you another picture of one that that's more like what the one that we had looked like. You know, oh, whereas this picture oh, yeah. of the one doesn't even have their their logo and stuff written the way they you know ultimately did. So the one that's on the cover yeah. of this this magazine was clearly an early prototype. Um, yep. You know, because the second picture is the one that had their blue color and their and their mitts, you know, mark, company yep. mark trademark name and the little blue slashy thing and and they wrote Altair 8800 computer in a very specific computery looking you know futuristic looking <laughs> font um which you know you look at that font today and you go well that's kind of hokey but honestly well, it's it's that font is almost the same font that they print the um the numbers at the bottom of your check is written that's, that's right they, and they so were it's meant a, to be that way yeah it's a computer yeah. legible computer red font um, of now, course, now, that said, now, most people look at that and go, what's a check? <laughs> well, now, when you say the computer that we had, uh, you're absolutely right. It was the second computer that, that I had. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, yeah, the original the company, one after you had. While, after a while, realized that I had a low serial number uh, machine that he... Uh, he wanted to preserve, and so he. Yeah, I think you up. had serial number one or something, right? No, no, I never had serial number one. I I believe it was three, but mm -hmm. I, I I can't swear by that. Uh, but anyway, because these machines really belonged to him, I mean, he sent me another one that was much nicer and easier to use and all that. So I sent the low serial number one back to him, and I think that went to a museum somewhere. Yeah, the, the, probably the one up in uh, Silicon Valley or something. Yeah, or Boston, maybe they've got one too. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, that makes sense. That that uh, you know the earliest of those computers should have been preserved, and like you said, the the subsequent models in later production runs were, uh, you know, better produced, less weird jumpers and things to to uh, well, you know, well, boards were better you, designed, you, more memory. If you took the cover off of that serial number three, if that was the correct number, and looked inside, it had jumper wires all over the place to bypass mistakes that were made in the hardware. I mean, it was you know clearly a, a prototype, and and you see it by by seeing all those yeah. wires hanging everywhere. And as a consequence, yeah. the wires 
uh, it would make mistakes occasionally because there was, you know, EMF uh, currents on wires flowing next to other wires, and you'd, it would upset the the bits at some, uh, you know, it was a, at least a possibility of that occurring. Mm -hmm. uh, you'd never get a certain answer from anybody, but we realized that once you got too many wires in there, you were asking for unreliable performance. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, again, early days, right? So, yep, you wing it, right? You wing it. So, anyway, uh, let's see. I thought I saw something else from you here. Uh, did you send me something before today? Mm, no, other than we were talking. Um, you know, amongst ourselves about blockchain technology a couple of days ago, and that's what we were—that's where oh, we were at. So that—that that was it. I, so. I thought I saw something else when I opened it up this morning, but maybe I didn't. Yeah. I didn't spend much time with it. Uh, no, we didn't do a lot of prep today. We just said, "Well, let's just get on and talk about what's uh, what's on our mind." And I kind of did want to sort of revisit some of the stuff that we had talked about, just some of that history um, uh, on the on the Phantom Show that didn't get recorded. So. Yeah, we, we. I think both of us had in mind on the second show that we would try to repeat some of it, but it, we'd just done it, and, and we didn't really want to talk about the same thing. <laughs> right, yeah, I think it, yeah, so we ended up talking about new stuff on Tuesday, and so today we rehashed a little bit of that and a little bit of that history, which is fine. Um, I did want to share the one thing that I always thought was funny, too, or that you, you talk about how things have been different, you know. There, there are still computers with spinning disks in them, even though more and more of them, especially laptops, are going to solid-state storage. But uh, my first um, introduction to um, to spinning disks uh, was sort of simultaneous with with my um, I think my my, the, my first PC. I went. I remember. I remember getting a disk that was um, uh, had the um, I had a controller on it, and the disk supported the controller that did run ring. RLL run length limited um, right. encoding, right. and so I was able to get sixty megabytes onto a disk as opposed to uh, the twenty, and I think forty was sort of the max at that time. And by using this different encoding, I was able to get a sixty megabyte, and we're megabyte with an M. And I was I was just you know proud as could be that I had a sixty megabyte hard drive in my machine. Uh, which was just more space than anybody could ever imagine using in, at that point yeah, in time, the, which was in ridiculous. Those days, we could have we could have said the M meant monster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the way we thought of it, you know. Yeah, yeah, because it was been out there before. Yeah, yeah, it was massive. <laughs> another another M right. word, but right. uh, but at work we used disk drives that were attached to the PDP-11 computer via cables that ran underneath the floor. And the disk drive unit was the size of a washing machine. And you open the lid on the top of it, imagine like, you know, these top load washing machines, and reached in, grabbed a handle, and pulled out a stack of disks. And I'm thinking there were seven in the stack. For some reason, I think my disks were stacked in sevens. And, and the disks were 12 inches in diameter, and they were in this plastic hood and then when you took them out, you then snapped them onto a base so that they stayed sealed inside there and didn't get dust on them because you weren't to touch them or do anything. You wanted to keep them protected and away from dust, even though they were essentially open to the outside, which was ironical. Um, but that's part of the reason they were in a computer room, and that computer room always had positive pressure. It had its own air conditioning system, 
and uh, that air conditioning system pushed air out through the floor, through the top of the computers as it heated up, and then out the vents and and out the door. If you came anytime you opened the door from the outside, you got air blowing in your face. So that room was always positive pressure to keep all the dust out of it as much as possible. And the air yep. conditioning system wasn't just an air conditioning system, but an air handling system with filters and stuff on that had to be cleaned in order to make sure that that room stayed as clean as possible. Yep, it was very dust days. free. Yeah, but I remember those hard drives. Those were always, I thought, uh, you know, you think about hard drives in a computer. And, it, and I remember, I think they were 10 megabyte uh, hard drives. Those seven disks together were a total of 10 megabytes. And I remember I had a 60 megabyte drive that I had in my machine at home. And my 60 megabyte drive was about, I don't know, you know, like the, today's, you know, if you look at a three and a half inch drive today, if you buy one that goes in a server, they're maybe an inch and a half or two inches thick by maybe six by eight something like that inches yeah and this one was like double that height so they were these these drives were about three and a half or four inches deep but six by eight that standard size is still there for that three and a half inch disc but these were thicker they took up a huge chunk of space inside of uh, of computers so desktop computers needed to be big because all the peripherals that you put into them were big you know that uh uh when I was telling you about the stack of discs that I dared to put on an airplane, even though it wasn't qualified to be put there, mm-hmm. uh, the disc size on those were uh, about 12-inch diameter uh, for the uh, the discs themselves. Yeah, uh, that's didn't... what they were in the in the for the ones I was talking about the in the in oh. the computer room. These were 12-inch okay, I... diameter discs, and there was a stack of I think about seven of them with a like plastic hood that fit over them and you would lift the whole thing out of the washing machine unit and snap it onto a bottom so that it was sealed and then set it on a rack when you weren't using it and then plug it get another one and set it down in there and then twist it to lock it into the drive and then close the lid and hit the button to start the drive up again it was very much like washing dishes Right. And in fact, uh, it wouldn't surprise me, but I believe those earlier ones were, like you said, seven and or possibly an eight disc stack. And the reason for it was they actually read the data in parallel in and out a byte at a time so that you were taking one bit off of each disc at the same time. And that avoided having to serialize and deserialize the data and get you much quicker response. Mm hmm. Uh, now I I don't know I don't think we talked about that before, but uh, at least some of the earlier ones were like that. I don't know whether the ones that uh, you and I had were that way, but uh, they uh, uh, a, an important characteristic of a hard drive in those days was was the actual data transfer rate, and uh, then there was a seek rate that was to find it on the disk. But once you found the start of the data, now when you want to read it in and out, you know how fast the it, could you get each, you know, one byte after another off of that disk? And mm-hmm. so par- parallel transfer of, of one entire byte at a time was far superior to anyone uh, trying to uh, take eight p- pieces at a time and then send the, the byte out. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, the, the other thing that was done then was because most of the mini computers which were in use at the time they developed it they were 16-bit words and so they would take two bytes stick those together to make a word out and in order to do that 
you would have a disc with two heads. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and so they were set up so that you could format that disc for 16-bit word transfer. And so the whole set of electronics that were actually managing the data going on and off the drive were built assuming that you you were transferring a word at a time on or off the disk so you know the, today uh, I don't know how they do it but uh, you know you got 32 bit 64 bit machines uh, it's very likely that you do the hardware so that you're doing still word transfer and let the electronics the, the hardware side of it deal with the with the manipulation and packing of the data into that word because that's much faster than any software can do it. So that was the idea of things. If, if you wanted something done fast, you did it as much of you could, as you could in a little bit of electronics. Uh, and, uh, and well, uh, that rule probably still applies today. Software, or hardware is always going to be faster than software. Um. Well, software runs on the hardware, hardware, so it's limit. Well, software well, is well, limited by the hardware, it, in that, a sense. That's right. Yeah, software depends on several steps in the hardware sense in order to perform functions. You mm -hmm. know, and how many steps to uh, to do that it determines the speed yeah. with which it can be done. But I would say these days that most CPU systems. Which is which includes the operating system running on it is sitting waiting for things like spinning hard drives, which is why we've gone to solid state, because they're faster oh, yeah. than the than the, oh, than the physical yes. physical drives. So I mean, it's just a yeah. matter of how you frame it. Yeah, I sent you a picture. It's not exactly the same as the stacks of discs that I had, and this one looks like it has more. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine. This one looks like it's got nine or ten discs in it, but um, but it's very similar to the to the units that I used to deal with, um, like twelve inch drives that you grabbed the handle in the middle and and snapped it off of a, of a storage base and then set it down inside of a big tub that was then the actual disk drive reading reading and writing unit. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's the same kind of drive. Did you can you count the discs? Um, I counted that one. It looks like there's nine or ten, and that one uh -huh. looks. A little bit big, a little bit bigger than the one that we generally used. I'm, I'm for some reason I'm thinking ours had seven in it, but I could be wrong, you know. And this one's a Burroughs brand. I don't think ours was Burroughs. For some reason I was thinking ours was Pertech, but I could be wrong. But it was rebranded yeah. under the name of the publishing, uh, the company that sold the publishing system. Um, well, uh, we well, used Burroughs a system called computers back in those days, so that's probably yeah. just. Exactly like what I had used from Hewlett Packard, which only had the Hewlett Packard logo on it. But, but yeah. as you know, they didn't build those because that wasn't their business. Right. Yeah, yeah. So they would put their label on everything they sold you, but they were reselling like the disk drive parts. Right. They would build the CPUs, uh, right. but the rack and everything was labeled by the manufacturer or by the by the end seller of this stuff. Like we bought a publishing system which was by a company called Atex. And so it was an Atex. Everything was labeled Atex, even though they were DEC PDP-11 computers, and we knew that. And they were attached to you know, hard drive systems that were built by yet another company. But Atex put it all together and sold it as a package that was a publishing system. So, And I yeah. went to school back in Boston um, multiple times, but basically mostly what it was was learning how to do 
um, hardware troubleshooting on the DEC PDP-11s, how to go through and do board-level diagnostics so that we could trace a signal down a board and, if there were, and find out if a... Um, you know, if there was a capacitor or a diode or something that had gone bad, then we would desolder it, solder on a new piece and put it back in and run it. Because <laughs> that's yeah. the way, you know, they, they were expensive. So you didn't just throw it out and buy a new one. You, you fixed it. Right. Yeah, it's, it's hard today to imagine repairing an electronic card, right? <laughs> well, virtually yeah. impossible with the electronics we have now. They're so deeply embedded. We're talking about uh, what is it, nanometer uh, uh, components now? One mm-hmm. or two nanometer, a few atoms wide. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're talking what um, the newest uh, Apple processor that was in the um, in their new uh, iPad Air is five nanometers. <clears throat> is the five na- which yeah. means that the distance between items on the processor itself are five nanometers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the the ones the existing ones in the in the uh, iPhone 11s and um, and uh, I think it's in the also in the um, I think iPhone 10s and 11s use the same seven nanometer process. They were seven nanometer, so they've taken two more nanometers off. Yep, which is why they're talking about having to uh, you know we're running up against a really hard boundary in terms of the silicon uh, as the basis for uh, logic processing uh, and uh, it used to be optical I don't know if that's still the next favored uh, yeah. technology to, to do to do this type of work mm-hmm. or not but well they always talk about quantum computing and that's that's a way to get smaller I guess just to give I, you by a, a, a sense of of measurement here okay we're saying that we're at a five nanometer. So two two items sitting on a on a piece of silicon are five nanometers apart. A strand of human DNA DNA is roughly two point five nanometers in diameter. So you lay two strands of DNA together, and and that's how close we're talking here. A bacteria, <laughs> a single bacterium, is about a thousand nanometers long, and a strand of human hair is between 80 and 100 nanometers wide. I'm sorry, 80,000 and 100,000 nanometers wide. Okay, a sheet of paper is about 100,000 nanometers thick. And this is and we're talking about 5 nanometers apart. That's how close we're talking. This, this is so so incredibly super super tiny. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you talked about, you know, wires inside of an Altair 8800 having um um interfering with each other because there was wires in the space. Can you imagine, you know, the problems (laughs) they're dealing with when you're, when you're dealing with signals going down wires that are five nanometers away from each other? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and those are the problems that they're trying to solve. Well, a lot of those problems are solved by multidimensional, you know, back when, when I was involved with the uh, solid state stuff, the, the, uh, the codings to create, conductive paths and put components on were all in uh, uh, on a flat surface and and you'd make deposits on that flat surface well you run into problems in the design of those because you have long lengths of conductor representing a wire and when you have long lengths of that then you get stronger electromagnetic force 
from conduction along that uh, along that wire. Uh, now, the solution to the problem is keeping all wires short. So if you can't go a long ways in a in any dimension, you got to go mm -hmm. in in four you know three dimensions uh, when you actually lay out the device. So it's laid out in this solid state form and. And of course, they've been doing a lot of work on that since I've been there. So I don't, e can't even imagine the complexities of, of three-dimensional design. You know, thinking of it in your in your brain. But I would, I would assume uh, that that's a whole in study in, in its own. I've, I've never taken a course in three-dimensional layout, but there's got to be courses like that out there now for people in that business. Uh, it's uh, just just a tremendous problem to manage this the shortness of wires or interconnections, and and of course it depends mm -hmm. what components you're having. So every every the design itself uh, of of the product has a lot to do with just how how many of these things you how densely you can pack little. Uh, I don't even know what to call them, module, little small modules, I guess, three-dimensional mm -hmm. modules. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you've got to think that's where they're going, right? I mean, we've got, you know, if, if you can't continue to get density across a flat surface, we're going to start going to multi-dimensional surfaces, right? Well, yeah, but, but, but even before you go there, there are some other options, and that is uh, the, basic, the basics for uh, just about all the electronics in my, in my era and study was uh, uh, on-off bits. Well, you can now have, uh, they, didn't, they had another name for them, but instead of just an on-off, you had uh, a four-state system. Right. So you yeah, three-state and four-state systems, you right. Four, you could count to 16 with four bits, you know? Yep. And so, uh, and, and these had to do with just levels of the signal. And I, there's a name for this whole business, but uh, that's, I'm sure, uh, because that, that they're using that today because they uh, had built some models in my era to prove the concept, you know? Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Well, they continue to expand on that. Yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, it's, I think, just like as as we kept finding different ways to store stuff and disk drives, spinning disk drives kept getting bigger and big, bigger and cheaper and cheaper and faster and faster to compete with ongoing things. They're continuing to do that with existing models, finding ways to go faster and faster in more power-saving ways. Things like, um, you know, as we've talked about, you know, Apple kind of going all in on the A series silicone that is basically the arm um, uh, instruction set but the underlying architecture that they design doesn't necessarily have to be the same as the architecture that's used by other people as they you know make things more specific to their needs um, you know as long as they're supporting that same instruction set at the code level right at the at the hardware level um, mm -hmm. which they've apparently licensed and have no desire to go buy arm holdings even though I guess at one time they owned a good chunk of it, that is no longer the case, but they have apparently rock solid licensing because they don't seem to be too concerned that, that, um, uh, 
that ARM is being purchased by a company that doesn't have the friendliest relationship with Apple. Um, <laughs> well, they they just multi-vendor, you know. So there's competition is the best thing that drives technology, you know. People have different, better ways to do things, and they come in and try to sell their their concepts and ideas. And that, yeah. to me, uh, right there was one of the wonderful things that I learned uh, when I first got into the management business. I uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, in the early days of what they called Space and Missile Systems Organization. They they shortly changed the name to Ballistic Missiles Organization, but there was that was the founding. Uh, I can't say company, but organization in the entire United States Air Force for a discipline that, you know, is common now. We it was called systems engineering, and and nobody mm-hmm. in the Air Force does any kind of electronics or even major system development like a missile system or whatever, without having uh, a large systems engineering department, and that was a fascinating technology all its own because yeah. it, it brought logic and, and sensible ways to manage projects, uh, particularly technical projects, to be certain that uh, you had success. It, you know, without systems engineering, you couldn't really kind of guarantee uh, any schedules or anything associated with development. Too often, just ad hoc development was taking place in, uh, around uh, all these labs and spending, you know, as you can imagine, in the Defense Department, billions of dollars. Well, that that came to a quick halt when they built the Minuteman system, which is where they first used systems engineering in a very large-scale way. And uh, I wasn't a part of that original team, but I was probably the mm-hmm. next-generation inheritor when we built the Peacekeeper system. Uh, and so uh, it, it just was a... Uh, in, invaded every part of procurement and uh, development of technology. It wasn't just when you went to build the missile systems, when you had a little project uh, off to the side to develop some uh, circuit, mm-hmm. uh, which I was involved in. I had contracts with MIT and, and a number of major companies, uh, labs, to, uh, to develop uh, some uh, what they called nuclear-hardened or radiation-hardened uh, parts yeah and these are equivalents to what we put in computers and any kind of electronics today but uh they're they had a special characteristic that we could use them in in an environment that was ultimately going to be irradiated and suddenly and and then we had to keep operating and so that was a fascinating thing and and that had to be really carefully managed to be sure that we had products that worked when we put them in strategic missiles, for example, because that was our business. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. well, uh, there's been lots of, of, of um, movies and things dealing with the idea of, you know, you know, the effects of radiation on things and the, and the, um, and the electromagnetic pulse has been a real uh, topic of conversation in the last decade as to what that would do. And, and how we survive those things. Lots of novels written and, and, and movies and stories told about that. And that's stuff that, that uh, you know, if you're in that business, you had to deal with real time, you know, years before it was publicly something people were aware of or even considered. I, I, I might mention one other experience that I was lucky to have. I went to work for a little company called Questron, 
I'm sure they're not in any in existence today, but I don't know that they went away. Uh, but uh, anyway, they uh, uh, that company started by a couple engineers that had done uh, and participated actively in uh, testing out at the Nevada test site. Uh, they had their own electronic stuff uh, irradiated by a blast down in the underground at the Nevada test site. And mm-hmm. they were the managers of, uh, of this little company. And there was only about 25 people there. And, uh, and so I went to work for them because I was an electronics nuclear parts guy. And, uh, and so they knew me from that experience. And uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the company was immensely successful because they were kind of the United States expert, which sort of implied world expert on developing hardened parts for both the Navy mm-hmm. Uh, submarines as well as for the uh, the Air Force uh, missile silos. Questron uh, Corporation designs and manufactures electrical engineering systems. They were founded in 1986. They're located in Auburn Hills, Michigan. They have 11 between 11 and 50 employees and they're ranked number 286 on the Inc 5000 rankings as of August 11th, 2020. They're in Michigan or Illinois? Auburn Hills, Michigan. Michigan. Wow. Wonder how they got up there. Well, they probably uh, moved close to some facility that uh, that they use often. That when I was with them, they were near San Diego, just north of mm-hmm. San Diego. Yeah. But I didn't work there. I, I they had uh, even though it was a small company, we had branch offices. One in San Bernardino, California, which is what I managed, as well as yeah. uh, a bunch of MIT professors that worked for the company in Boston, Mass. And uh, mm-hmm. and who knows? They may be still, you know. I mean, they say they're they're based there. That may be where their corporate offices are, or where they're incorporated right now. But that doesn't mean that that's where their, all their employees work. You know, right. nowadays it's even well, especially nowadays with 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 uh, the current state. But I mean, you know, it's much easier to be a remote worker or a remote employee than it used to be. Um, you know, at one point in time working out of your house or working at a at a satellite office could sometimes make you feel a little isolated from what was going on in your company um yeah. nowadays that's well literally since this since 2020 this year that's how everybody's working right but yeah. uh but even prior to 2020 it was much easier because of the technology yeah since you went on their site you didn't happen to see any little history button or anything did you i'm just curious. i'm not on their site i went to a site i, I did a quick search and found a uh, a, a link through uh ink magazine oh. and they they listed uh they still listed anyway it, so. I'll, I'll have to re, re you know yeah so i'm sure they probably have a website there. somewhere I'm, I'm glad to hear the company's still in existence that that's neat yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny you were talking about and you and I have had this conversation before uh and and I think we've we've come to heads and agreed that that we're I tried to tell you that, that in my business degree we were doing similar types of things and that there's a whole process that was put together in the late 70s and early 80s by IBM called business systems planning which is very much like the systems engineering thing where it's a very um there's a structured process by which you analyze how you do things in order to mm-hmm. do them better, and uh, and I found a lot of similarity there. But we but uh, we have had disagreements well, as to how similar or not similar they are over time. 
Well, I, I, uh, you know, thinking of it today, my mind would say that there's no doubt in my mind that somebody out of the early SAMHSA or BMO experience that went to work for IBM and said, hey, here's a way to improve our processes. That's, that's the way that kind of right. thing happens. And, and, but, but it could also be the exact opposite, that IBM was maybe involved at the beginning of that because they were involved in all kinds of government things. And yeah. uh, maybe they oh, said, hey, here's something we're doing. Maybe we should share that with you guys and we'll build something out of it. So I, I, oh, I, I, I get, my guess is there's a lot of cross-pollination there because, oh, you know, a sure. good idea is a good idea. <laughs> well, the government has lots of contracts and they, sure. and everybody knows that when they sign up a contract, they, they, they have to have some systems engineering capability or they won't get the contract. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. The way In it fact, works. if you, in, in looking at a Wikipedia page on, on the business systems planning model, IBM apparently originally did it as an internal use only thing. And then, uh, and then began selling it as a as a as a um, service uh, later, you know, as an income source for them. So and, and the other thing that I can see along this line is, as I said, systems engineering is a pretty general process and could be applied to just a whole bunch of areas, not just yeah. engineering. I yeah, mean, that's why it didn't have the engineering thing. They, IBM sees themselves as an information business. You know? Yeah. Uh, so well, their definition to... here says is the result of the uh, of of BS, BSP projects is a technology roadmap aligning investments and business strategy. Mm-hmm. So it was like to make sure everybody's working in the same direction on the same goals, you know. Yep. Uh, and when you get a large company, that's not always the case. And so this was well, a way to let, let, let me give you a quick, quick uh, uh, overview of system engineering as I know it or call it whatever you want it want to. But uh, there's a couple major areas that that are always addressed as part of that, and one of them, right up front, when you do any kind of development, is what we call interface management. In other words, you have different groups working on different parts, but somewhere along the way, got, those parts are going to interface. And so, in order to be sure the groups were working together, they had to have interface meetings with every group that they inter that the, their component was going to interact with. Mandatory mm-hmm. part of the engineering it was just that's the way you're going to manage it so interface management was a big deal uh, another one is of course testing ultimately when you got an integrated system from lots of different places uh, we, we got to start early in the game as to how we're going to test this to verify uh, the most important and first thing that all groups that were required to have is is a clear set of requirements before you ever begin so the very yeah, imagine that. <laughs> Actually, know what your end result is supposed to be before you start building it, right. which seems obvious, but it's so not in in many cases. But but all of these disciplines were were very uh, had a lot of components to them that I could go into greater detail, but I, that's not appropriate now. But right. But uh, they ensured the quality of the product, you know. Right. And and the cost because cost was another big. Right. Thing that was done across the board as you uh, as you develop the system. Right. And of course, yeah. well, that had sim- a lot to do with the requirements because you know it had to be affordable sure. in a certain budget. So that was that was developed just like you would develop the hardware. You had developed the cost, the budget. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds very similar to like the business system planning. They 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 started with developing uh, strategic targets, which are your goals. These are the things that we're trying to achieve, so that everybody understands what it is we're trying to do, 
and then you analyze the processes that you will work, which was sort of the interfacing. Here's all the different processes and how they interrelate to each other. So you know who you have to work with in order to make your part work in the in the larger whole. And uh-huh. and then um, downline from that were all of the different data classes, all the different bits and pieces that went into that. You know, so like, um, you know, if you're if you're um, uh, if a process is renting cars, then there might be an, a, you know vehicle requirements down in the data classes. So that you would then say, well, you know, if we're going to rent a car, we can't get a two-seater if there's four people, right? That kind of thing. I mean, and obviously mm-hmm. I'm making this real simple. But uh, same kind of idea, you know, and same concept. So, I, yeah, there's too much similarity there to not have been, you know, some people who were yeah. uh, obviously aware of each other and what was going on. Um, you know, in the idea of saying, you know, when you're, when you're managing a group of people that's larger than one, um, you need to make sure that these certain things happen. Otherwise, there will be miscommunications. There will be misunderstandings about what the goals are. And, and, uh, and you know, you don't want to come together six months in and find out that, you know, my widget that's supposed to plug into your widget doesn't use the same type of connector because we didn't talk about it. You know, I right. assumed we'd be using the metric measurement. You assumed we'd be using standard measurements. And guess what? Our, our lunar lander just plowed into Mars, which makes no sense at all because it was a lunar lander. But you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I say that half tongue in cheek. You know that we did send a, a mission to Mars, and it did plow into the surface of the planet, and they came back and realized that that um, there was a miscommunication between some of the um, uh, subcontractors, some of which were European and some of which were American, yep. and some were using the metric system and some were not, and as a result, we drove our lunar our our martian lander into the surface of the planet because we weren't measuring properly yep you know lots of lots of uh, prior uh, stories about things that could go wrong and did go wrong yeah yeah you know and that's when you when you start going through these kind that's when somebody says okay we're going to fix this. <laughs> and that's when yep. systems engineering comes into, into, you know, is birthed when somebody says, right. I've had enough of this crap, you know, here's how we're going to fix yep. it. Let's all sit down. We'll put together the rules. And once we have the rules in place, then if everybody follows the rules, this won't happen again. Uh, of course, then there's yep. always the, I don't follow the rules guy. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You're like, well, ah, you want to pull your hair out. That's you know, that's managing people. I tell you what, if you haven't if you haven't wanted to pull your hair out at least once, um, if you're in a man ever been in a management position, then you weren't doing it right. Because <laughs> you're always yeah. going to find that one guy that you say, you know, jump, and he says, why? <laughs> yeah. Or worse than that, he doesn't say why. He goes okay, and then walks away, and you're like. Bob's over jumping, and you're like, no, Bob went out the door. He he's not jumping. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I've thought about all of the uh, of the stuff that's going on in our country today, and uh, it's basically because of a almost total lack of communications. I mean, the real oh, absolutely. problem. The, the real problem of all of this stuff is failing to communicate, and sometimes it's intentional. There are lots of people out there who stoke, keep stoking the fire, and and it's their intention to do that. Yeah. They, they, well, they I think news agencies on both are... sides of the political spectrum don't want things to be going smoothly because then they got nothing to talk about, and their job yeah. is is talking about stuff on TV, and yeah. so they've got to have stuff that's interesting, and that comes out of conflict much more well, than much more easily than it comes well, out of of agreement. 
Well, when you look at our systems, there's too many of them that are motivated by dollars, too. It's all of the media mm -hmm. uh, that make money based on yeah. things that get your emotions in the air. So what do they yeah. do? They say, hey, how can I make this guy scream or cry or whatever? Uh, yeah. And that's how you determine newsworthiness. Yeah. I mean, you know. It's, oh, I agree. I agree. You know, and I, I feel I have long said and I'm, you know, and I haven't sat down and said, here's where we need to draw the line. But I think that we we as a country, we need to determine who, you know, and get people to say, where do we draw the line on what works well in a capital system and what doesn't. And there are some things that absolutely work great. You know, the motivation of money is perfect for them. There's other things where that that's not a good motivation. That's not a good way to get things done. You know, it's not a good way to to disseminate fairly resources sometimes just based on he who has more money. And so I right. think we need I, we need to figure out what's the right way to do that and and try to do it. You know, I mean, I really wish that we we don't have a political leader right now on either side who has been who has a demonstrated uh, track record. And I, and I know people will argue with me on this point, but uh, that I think has a demonstrated track record of saying, you know, bringing people together and talking. And I know they all try to say they do that. You know, I know that's Biden's message. Is, oh, I've worked, you know, across the aisle for years. And, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, OK. You know, you've worked in the environment that's there, which means that there's times when you've had to be a complete shit just like the rest of them. But, um, yeah. you know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, although it's funny, I was sharing uh, I, I did some reading the other day and I was sharing with somebody the fact that, you know, as, as vile as we think our political system is right now, um, uh, do uh, when you get a chance sometime, Google Aaron Burr conspiracy. Now, Aaron Burr, most people know him as the guy who killed um, uh, Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Hamilton. Right. So that that's he yep. was famous for they, he shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel, uh, you know, and he was Thomas Jefferson's vice president. So he's vice president. One of our founding fathers had a disagreement um, and and challenged Ham Hamilton to a duel. Hamilton loses and dies. Um, what they don't realize is that after he left office as vice president, his political career was kind of dead because of the fact that he killed somebody. Um, technically, that was illegal, but he didn't get charged for it. He then uh, started putting together a conspiracy with one of the leading generals of the United States, who was essentially what would be our secretary of defense today. And the two of them were conspiring to create a country called Burr in what was the Louisiana Purchase. And in fact, there's been some significant stuff just in the last few years where they've come out and found out that um, Meriwether Lewis, who was personal secretary to Thomas Jefferson, at one point apparently had some maps that had been put together by Hamil I mean, by Burr and by this general, defining where they were going to basically break away from the United States and create their own country, and that he was then assassinated, and that Meriwether Lewis was killed in like Tennessee, I think it was, uh, as he was trying to make his way back to Washington, D.C. with this evidence. And and some of this is supposition. Some of it is brand new stuff that's just come out in the last, like literally in the last couple of months. Um, but really, it's fantastic to think that a vice president of the United States and one of the leading generals in the country were doing this. <laughs> it's just amazing. Now, he was tried... 
this a book? He was or? tried for he was tried for treason. I read part of a book. I watched. Uh, I was started by watching a show on television where they started telling me about this, and I was just gobsmacked by it and said, wow, I've got to read more about this and learn about it. But you can start by just looking just uh, looking at the Wikipedia page. If you if you go to Aaron, look at Aaron Burr and then find the Aaron Burr controversy or Aaron Burr conspiracy, there's a separate Wikipedia page that talks just about that situation. Um, and and that'll give you just sort of the basics of the allegations. He was tried for treason. They didn't have enough um, evidence to to convict him, but basically he was shunned from society thereafter and ended up dying uh, a poor man. Uh, he, he went to Europe for a while and then he came back to the United States um, and, uh, and died in ignominy. But, but it's just fan, you know, we think we're having, you know, issues amongst our political people. Now we had a vice, a former vice president looking to, to basically hijack the Louisiana purchase and turn it into his own country. Holy moly. It's hard to believe. Wow. Yeah. It's very entertaining reading, but it also puts yeah. things in perspective when you think things are going crazy today. When you go like, okay, things have been going crazy here forever. Yep. We, you know, democracy, and, and people don't seem to get this, democracy is, is meant to be a messy thing. It's not neat and clean. Neat and clean yep. is totalitarian countries because everybody does what they're told or they get shot. Here, it's messy and dirty because there's thousands and thousands of us, and we all get to say and do whatever we want. And yep. and and I think we should accept it and revel in it and say, you know, that's a good thing, and that we'll muddle through. And it's frustrating sometimes. It's frustrating as all get out when it seems like, you know, chunks of the population aren't agreeing with you. But, uh, you know, I, I I beg that we all keep our an open mind as we go towards election here in November and and think about you know listen to the, what the other side has to say with open ears whether you agree with them or not you know yeah um, I discovered that there's a there's a um, proposition in California Prop 22 that's going to be on the ballot that talks about whether or not uh, people who who are uh, do Airbnb and who drive Ubers should be employees of the company as opposed to um, contractors and. Uh, I think that they should stay as contractors, that that type of work is best suited for contracting work. They determine when and where they're going to work. It's not meant to be a full-time job, but if somebody wants to do it, they can. But they won't get benefits as contractors. Um, most of the contractors are fighting against it, as are the companies. But there are some people who, who strongly believe that this is taking advantage of people because... Um, you know, the company said you could do this full time if you wanted. And, and and who knows, maybe the answer is, is that, you know, if you do it over a certain number of hours, that then you should become an employee. And if the company, you know, doesn't want that, then they should limit the number of hours people are allowed to do it and just say that up front when they agree to work with Uber or Lyft or whoever they're, you know, using as their means to get rides. And I'm using that well, as an example. But anyway, well, I found out I, that somebody else disagreed with me. And and we stopped for a second, and then I paused and said, could you explain to me? I said, I'm open-minded about this. I'm, I haven't decided completely. Explain to me your thinking so that I can understand why you feel the way you do. And that's basically the argument that, that he made, was that that um, that it wasn't fair to people, to employees, that they can't make a living off of those jobs, and they're trying to, and that if they were actually employees, then instead of hiring, instead of having you know 10,000 of them sign up, they would hire... Uh, you know, half that many 
and be able to give them benefits and and pay for for um, uh, workman's comp and things like that. Well, you, you know, the real question is is uh, explain to me why it is that people are taking those jobs if the, if they can't decide what is best for them. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. You know, why would you take away somebody's jobs, which is what you're proposing, because you don't think it's right? That's none of your damn business. <laughs> well, that was kind of my feeling, and but ironically, the person I was talking with, while I asked their opinion. They did not ask mine. They did not ask why I felt the way I did, and so I didn't feel like it was appropriate for me to then tell them why I disagreed with them. They didn't ask. I asked specifically why they believed the way they did. Now, part of it might have been that in between, as they were finishing what they were doing, there was a loud ruckus and noise that kind of disrupted our conversation. So maybe they would have come back and asked, but they didn't. And again, because they didn't, I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to, to just you know, shout them down. And I obviously wouldn't have actually shouted, but I mean, you know, when I very specifically asked for their opinion, it, you know, they then trusted that I was being honest and wanting to hear their opinion, which I was. So I didn't want to hear their opinion so that I could tell them they were wrong because I felt uh, that would be kind of impolite. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I understand. You know? And so I was trying to be, I was trying to be very honestly curious about their thought process and why they felt that way. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was glad that they that that I that it was shared with me what was going on and why. Um, you know, I they didn't change my mind. Um, I'm with you. I feel like, you know, it, especially prior to COVID, when when we were at a very high uh, um, work rate, there were you know there was lots of jobs to be had. If you didn't want to do that job, go pick a different one. Yeah, you know. See, that's um, the beauty. That's the real beauty of the whole capitalist system. Is it gives it. It's a, a system of opportunities for both yeah. the entrepreneurs as well as the workers. You got your choice, you know. And and in mm -hmm. fact, I I, uh, I just don't quite understand why people want to think they're they're they can figure out what's good yeah. for other people. You're you know? not getting benefits you should be getting, so I'm going to make them fire you so that you can get benefits that you're not getting even if those benefits tend to turn out to be unemployment benefits because you lost your job. Yeah. Which makes no, you know, I mean, to me that makes no sense. I, you know, and they will argue and say that nobody's going to lose their job, that there will still be jobs there. Um, it's just that they will get paid better. But that doesn't make sense mathematically. You know, there's only X amount of income coming in, and those companies will then hire less people than are currently working for them uh, or yeah. working with them as contractors because they can't afford to hire all the contractors employ as employees. And in fact... Uh, those companies have flat out said uh, because th this was going to um, th th a law was passed by the the legislature to f enforce this and it got uh, over it got held up by judges and so that's why they're putting it on the ballot now because um, uh, the California legislature tried to do this and the companies that were involved while they took it to court said literally the you know the day before it was supposed to, before the judge finally put a stay on it and said no, the legislature can't do this. They said, we're pulling out. We will just not have Uber and Lyft in California. You lose. Yeah. Now you got to wait for a taxi. Yep. You know? And yep. quite frankly, they, you know, there's a lot of people who use Uber and Lyft to just get around because it's a better way. It's a better solution than taxis. It really is. You know? Yep. And the vast majority of people, when I have ridden with them, when I talk to them, 
you know, it's they don't do this as the only thing they do. They do this when they're done working to pick up some extra cash. It's sort of a side gig for them. Right. And, you know, and I mean, I don't do it, but I know, uh, you know, my brother and his wife have done the um, the uh, uh, Airbnb thing a lot. When they go somewhere, they'd rather stay in, you know, in a nice cabin or somebody's vacation rental or something than a hotel. They enjoy that. It's, you know, nicer places sure. in their mind. And so, you know, that disappears because now anybody who does that has to be has to basically sort of become an employee of Airbnb somehow. And I don't even know how that would work because Airbnb doesn't own the property. So I don't know exactly how that all works out. You know, that might, you know, it obviously would change, but I mean, it, it might not be that different. You know, they might well, find th- some way of. I think, I think it works just like a tourist agent would work. They get a piece of the action because they've made the sale, you know. Yeah, well, I mean that's how it ha- works now, but but what this law was going to say is that you can't do that anymore. Now, if you work, if you if you sign up with somebody like Airbnb, they have to treat you like an employee, which means that now they have to offer you a salary based on some already yeah. approved compensation method. That's, you know, which might be piecework. That's called that's called meddling, and that's the people who love government because they just want power over somebody else's lives. That's totally what that is, and it needs to be pointed out right up front. Well, you know, that's what they're trying to do. And I'll tell you that the the, the folks that run those types of companies are spending a lot of money to try to fight the... Um, the that the, Well, yeah, to fight the passage of that, that bill. And uh, it was interesting... Um, uh, I, in, in conversing with other people that essentially everybody else I've talked to has agreed with me in this particular instance, but, but there are also older people who I think tend to be a little bit more conservative. So it'll be very interesting to see how that all shakes out. But I think that anybody who uses those, those um, services are going to say, no, they almost left the state. There's no way I'm going to vote that in. <laughs> you know, I use that service. I don't want it to go away. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, we've kind of diverged into politics a little bit, but still, it's technology. I mean, these are technologies that allowed something new to happen, right? Uh, before yeah. smartphones uh, and and with GPSs in them and stuff and, and the ability to communicate, something like an Uber or a Lyft couldn't have existed. And now right. it, it exists and works well, um, and it has essentially just decimated the taxi industry. So I guess if you want to pump up and boost the taxi industry then you would be for this because well the, the the reason that it gets resistance is that the taxi people uh probably have unions or something like that so yeah. that they're represented they they feel they're oh i'm sure they do because, they do have unions what, but 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 what you need to point out is the unjustness of that there are people who pay thousands of dollars just to get that little permission from the city is right. part of a special fee in order to do business. And that's yeah. wrong, too. That's called extortion. Yeah. Well, that's you know, what that's it boils down to is, is, yeah, these guys got ripped off because they spent, you know, like you said, thousands of dollars to get their taxi medallion because the city only wanted X number of taxis. And so they only issued X number of licenses or medallions. And so, yeah. uh, you know, and so this was a way around that. It's like as many people as want to can go do that. And, you know, and how many will do it? Well, however many are needed by to meet the needs because you know the way it works is is if there's 
70 people trying to get a ride and only 60 people offering rides, then the prices go up, you know, and they can do that again because of the technology. They can adjust that. Whereas taxis, the rates were set by the city when you get your medallion. This is the amount you're allowed to charge. You know, so the government was saying how much you could make and how many people could do this. And, and it's like, why is, why on earth is the government making these decisions? What, what, what do they have to do with this at all? You know, if I choose to give some guy a ride and that guy chooses to give me a few bucks for the ride to cover my gas, that's that's between him and I. Yep. You know, uh, and if there's an app that allows us to find each other, then more power to us. Uh-huh. You know, and then there was always those gypsy taxis. You know, I remember one time traveling on business to New York uh, with somebody and uh, and while we're standing in line for the taxis in line. Because, you know, there's a hundred of us waiting for the stupid taxi. Guy walks up and says, where are you headed? We said, Manhattan. He goes, 20 bucks a piece? He says, I'll get you there. Said, all right. So we there was four of us. We all coughed up. Guy made 80 bucks driving into Manhattan. And I think, in talking with him, he just worked at the airport. But when he got off work, he figured, you know, I'm going to pick up 80 bucks on my way home. Yeah. So he gave guys ride home. You know, ride to their yeah. hotels. And it was like, okay. I love You know, it. and that was... That was exactly Uber, but, you know, 20 years ago. Yep. You know, now had he gotten stopped, he probably would have gotten a couple hundred dollar ticket if, if a cop had caught him because that was technically illegal. He's not a taxi taxi service, you know, but. Yep. Hey, is what it is. Yep. You know? Well, I love the fact that we got entrepreneurs. You know, there's a better way of doing things, and we wouldn't make any progress at all if we didn't have allowances for that. Yeah. A lot of these regulations are all designed to shut down any innovation or improvement. Mm-hmm. You know? There's, yeah. There's no, there's no time in history that's good time to shut down and, and constrain what people can do. Yeah. If they have the ability and want to do it, by golly, they should be allowed to do it. That's part of our freedoms. Well, I think the problem is, is that they always start out with the idea, and sometimes it's even a good idea that, hey, we're trying to protect people, you know, that they shouldn't be riding in a car with somebody that's not licensed because we don't know that guy could drive them off somewhere and kill them in a ditch. Maybe if they're licensed, then they we know who they are and they've had a background check and that people who are driving people around should, we should know that they have a, you know, a good license, that they have a good driving record, that they've been, had a background check. And it's like, okay, well, that's not such a bad thing. But then they take the next step. It's like, but we're only going to allow a certain number of these people so that there's not going to, you know, be too many of them out there. And then we're going to charge them for the, the we're going to charge them a fee to cover the cost of doing the background check and, and getting the licenses. And then we're going to, you know, and so, so and the next thing, you know, they've got taxi tokens that cost thousands of dollars and only certain people get to do it. And, you know, you have to mortgage your house in order to, to get the token so that you can have a job. And then six months later, Uber comes to your town and you're out of business and you've lost thousands of dollars and don't own your house anymore. Yep. You know, cause it just keeps, they keep adding on, they keep adding on. Well, we started out with just a good idea. We're trying to protect people, but then, you know, it's like, well, well, we'll add this and then we'll, and then we'll charge them because now we got to cover the costs of all this stuff that we said we were going to do to make sure that people were safe. Well, and, I, and it just know, keeps going and going. When, when you use that term, protect people, can you, can't you just see it coming with all the riots and stuff that we've had in a lot of these cities? There's going to be people around. Hey man, I'll, I'll protect you. You know? Well, I mean, and there's already the thing, been, the you thing know, is the, that I, I don't want, 
a dang government official responsible for my protection anymore because they're unreliable. Well, the, you know, that's the thing is that's the isn't that the argument that's going on in places like Portland where the the uh, mayor has said, you know, the, the the federal government says we we want to send in people to stop this and protect people in their property and the mayor is going we don't want the federal government in here to protect. We're just going to let them march in the streets and they'll get their they'll they'll have their say and then they'll be done. And and so now there's, you know, two different arms of the government trying to protect people in different ways and it's like, "Oh my gosh." Yeah. I don't know. And then you've got, you know, the the kid who shot somebody and tried to turn himself into the police going like, you know, these people yeah. attacked me and I shot this guy. So here's what happened. And police wa- drove by waving at him. <laughs> well, he turned himself in the next day and said, hey, here's what happened. And there was video. I mean, he was clearly being attacked. I mean, the guy was being chased and, you know, um, you know, here, it's just I, I, the whole situation's untenable. I, 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 I'm, I'm sure you haven't seen it, but I, I did a little blurb on uh, Facebook yesterday. It just had been in my mind for a long time. And Yeah, I do nothing the on real, Facebook. The, the real problem is the word justice. You know, people think or assume that we can have real justice on this earth. Well, that's impossible, and I pointed out why. And so what we have is approximation of justice. And you have to understand that all the assumptions that have to be made on both sides here, you can't have, uh, you, you can't have anarchy in this country. We know that. Therefore, we have to have some police, somebody to maintain order, because people don't want to live with anarchy. Now, of course, yeah. Well, today, and virtually, you know, ninety-eight percent of the population agree with that, that, regardless of race, color, creed, or religion. Everybody wants fair and equal treatment from the people who have the guns, the yeah. police, and whomever. But no, uh, you know, there, yeah, there's a few loons out there saying, "Get rid of police." But the vast majority of people go like, "No, I want to be able to pick up the phone and call the police." <laughs> you know, I want to know that when they come, they're going to help me if there's somebody doing bad things. Yeah, yeah. But along with that, come some issues that I thought was covered very good on 60 Minutes the other night. Did you see uh, Koppel's thing on 60 Minutes? I did not. Well, uh, if you, I, I've got it recorded, but that didn't do you any good. <laughs> no, but I can go see it. Um, I have on, CBS online. online. I can go. I can go watch any of their shows. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember the two-term uh, thing that police depend on. Basically, you know, that that they're they're not liable for what they do. You know, because uh, they're in the in the performance of their duties and it's because it could easily bankrupt them okay but it's true and in fact i suffered that as a uh, renter i had a place in redlands california and unfortunately uh it was my fault i guess that i didn't know when i uh, signed the lease with them that they were involved in drugs now i don't know how you're supposed to be able to tell that but anyway uh I lost more money from those people than I ever would have had if they'd have stayed there five years. And that's because the police came and knocked down the front door. They had a safe, apparently, where they were hiding the stuff that was blasted open in my garage. This is still safe, big, heavy thing. I could hardly get it up into the car to get it over to the trash can. It was uh, just, I mean, and not just that the walls had been ho- holes pounded in some walls 
I mean, there was a battle going on in my apartment. I owned this. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I got rid of my renters. I mean, the police probably threw them in jail. I don't know what happened, but I knew I wasn't going to get another check from them. So, but anyway, I was left with the, with the damage. Now, in many cases, I exactly in the same situation these people in Minneapolis and Portland and whatever, they had a lot bigger losses than I ever hoped to have. You know, or, I don't mean hope to have, but, you know, than I, than I sustained. But it's mm -hmm. a real shock when it comes home to you that something like this happened in your apartment. The only reason I even found out about it was two days after the event. Uh, nothing had been done, and the front door was still left open, according to my neighbor who called me. Uh, just one of the neighbors happened to know who, I, who owned the place, mm -hmm. okay, because I had talked to him one time. And he looked me up, and, and I thanked him a whole bunch. Anyway, then I went over, of course, and found out all the stuff I described to you. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, it's something that happens because police have no liability for, for anything that happens as a result of their, their actions to enforce the law. Yeah, and well, so that, that, is not, that is not entirely true as long as they are acting in a lawful manner. If the police themselves act in an unlawful manner, which they do on occasion, then they are held yeah. responsible. Yeah, but this was and a so, no-knock thing. This was a no-knock thing pretty much like that Brianna thing, uh -huh. you know? Yeah. Except nobody shot inside, but uh, they they poked, knocked the door down and got what they yeah. wanted. Uh, I don't even know if the renters were in the uh, house at the time. I have no idea. They might have shot them if they were. Yeah, well, so so you don't really have details. You don't know if it was no knock. They may have knocked and then busted the door down anyway, you know, because nobody opened the door if nobody was there, right? Yeah, or escape out the back or something, you know. But right. There was, yeah. There was a back door, so. But yeah, you know it. But you know, you're lucky in your case that it was it was you know some property damage, which is not an easy thing to deal with that you had to cover the costs on. But uh, you know, like you said, it's like when when you're renting somebody, you know, renting space to somebody, they seem like a reasonable and nice person. How, you know, obviously, if somebody comes up and looks like they're, you know, high and they're and they're you know are. are look like a drug dealer. I mean, they come up and say, Hey, you know, my income is through dealing drugs. You know, you, you're not going to rent to them, but how well, are you supposed to know? And yet, you well, know, you're, you know, you're out all the money of the damage that was done. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing mm -hmm. in this case is I rented it to two women of which I only met one of them. So mm -hmm. I, I didn't know, uh, I, that, uh, I mean, she looked like a real nice girl, but a, yeah. her, her friend didn't. <laughs> yeah. Which is why she wasn't there during during the meetup, right. huh? I guess I, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, it's uh, not not too many people get yeah. get that experience. Thank goodness. Sure. Yeah. Well, and you know, you say look like a nice girl. You know, the thing is too. You know, you could get criticized for saying, "Well, you didn't rent to somebody because they didn't look the way you thought they should look." And then, you know, how how do oh, you, you know, how, how do you defend that? You know, it's like, well, you know. You don't, you know, you know? it's like, I don't know. I just made a decision based on what I made a decision on, you know? So, mm -hmm. but you could, well, you could I, in turn, you could turn around and get sued because somebody could say he didn't let me in because he said I didn't look good or, you know, or, or well, I, he didn't I, like I, because I, of the color of my skin or my hair or my eyes or, or my, you know, ethnicity, you know, he doesn't like yeah. Asians or he doesn't like, you know, there, there's all kinds of ways that that can be, um, uh, 
Well, as a Turned to- landlord, I did a background check on everybody. But right. the flaw in that is, is that the only way you can do that is that they give you the numbers to call. You know? So yeah. I, I said I wanted the, your previous renter. I mean, that was the, the number for that. So whether the person I was talking to was really the previous renter or not could have been their yeah. friend. Yeah, well, and there's companies that you can pay for a service that do a background check, but that also yeah. assumes that they that they have gotten caught, you know? Yep. You know, when you're and, and when you're renting something out, that's a major investment of yours that is now being occupied and handled and, and becomes the domicile of somebody other than you. And so you yep. lose rights to access that space even, you know, and so it's renting is, is a tricky thing, you know, well, and trying well, to decide anyway, who you rent to. Because, like I said, you can be criticized for for selecting or not selecting people to be your renter. My conclusion out of this whole thing was that I was a low renter, low cost renter, and I had to upgrade my apartment so I could charge greater rent. So I put a lot of money into it, and the next renter was the last renter I ever had. They were in there seven years. Yeah. Now that was a no hassle rent deal, and it was much higher priced. I raised my yeah. rent by two hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Okay. So that says I moved to a whole different class of people. Yeah. Well, there's something to that too, right? Being smart in in how you rent and who you rent to, but, by by your pricing. But 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 then you hear these people saying they want to mix up the low cost rent with the other uh, renters, or yeah. Now in every neighborhood in the country, have a low cost area you know mm-hmm. that's what's really scary about the current biden ticket that's their intention to change city ordinances so that low-cost renters have access to all communities in the city did you know that i had not heard that um and you know i mean time will come out i honestly it doesn't bother me at all because they're talking about running they're running for a, a national level thing and that's handled at the local level they have they have literally no say no more than than Trump has any oh, say as to what happens oh, oh, locally. They oh, oh, they do. There are some federal laws that control some of that to a certain extent. And they're going to change those laws so that the cities can now, now do things they currently don't do. You know, it's, it's some not cities like already cities are independent. No, no. They're, the cities do some of that already, and the cities are more independent than you think. They're not driven directly by the national laws. They're driven more by the state laws than they are the national laws. Um, and it, I think that's some fear mongering on the right, but I, I, you know, I do, I honestly admittedly don't know all the details of that because I had not heard that that was something that was a goal of theirs. So and anyway, that's, uh, that's something to be concerned with. And here's the really mm-hmm. thing, uh, thing that I find catching is that, uh, I am definitely not in favor of, uh, national government having as much power as it has today i would love to get back to where all the states have much greater power but Mm -hmm. i don't know how to i don't know the pathway to get there you know yeah well i think that has power at whatever level they don't give it up yeah the i mean it's a combination of two things i think one is uh the states asserting their rights more and then the um the court systems uh, backing them up when they get taken to court. That's and, the beauty of what Trump's doing now, at least. We're and so, by having court. by having originalist justices in in different places and judges, they tend to look at the Constitution as it was written and the intentions of the people who wrote it, and 
that perspective tends to say there are certain things that are are federal and there are certain things that are state and and those lines are where they should be um you know and and they tend to back that up so in that sense i agree although uh, i tend to like a fairly balanced supreme court and i'm afraid that we're going to be a little out of balance i say that though understanding that very often when justices get on the court they are not exactly the person that the person who put them there thought they would be that exactly. justices that's why i don't think we have a balanced court today well Justice i think that's oh, why not not voting as a conservative well he he tends to be the swing vote and and that therefore it is pretty balanced by putting on another person who is of conservative ilk then it will not they'll be, need more than one person to be a swing vote to kind of go one way or the other uh you know and so i think that that by adding and we'll see how how she ends up actually voting when she gets there because uh, i have no doubt that 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 uh and we're talking about um uh amy comey what's her last name i can't uh, think of it amy comey starts with something. a b <laughs> yeah barrett, amy comey barrett thank you amy comey barrett thank you i i suspect that she's going to get uh approved and put on the court fairly quickly um you know, I mean, but time will tell how she's actually going to vote. I yep. mean, and where things fall. And so that's, you know, that eases any well, concerns that I have well, about, like, the, a court being it's, balanced because... It's really a bad sign that we line them up as conservative versus liberal. Yeah. Well, because they don't always act that way. Yeah. I mean, clearly you seem to have some disdain for our for our um, uh, uh, lead justice right now. Um, I actually really like the fact that he's not partic- particularly predictable in terms of, you know, always taking this line or that. Um, and yet he still tends to be kind of a, a an originalist at, in the sense of it, too. It's just how he applies that. Well, so. he, he, he just absolutely, totally shocked me when he invented the tax to justify what they're doing. They didn't call it a tax. Uh and now the tax is gone, so that's the important part. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You're out of context. Well, he invented the tax. The tax. Who, in the original law, there was a, a tax on people who did not be, join the uh, the health care program, the non-affordable health care program. Okay? And so he called so, that a tax. It was something they they weasel worded in order to try to get it through legal, and they didn't, or they they shouldn't have, but they did, only because of Roberts, and everybody knew why that tax was there. It was totally yeah. Well, just because they didn't use the word didn't mean that it wasn't a tax. Yeah. Well, it was to get money out of people who, to help pay for the health care system that got nothing. Since when do we make things legal to charge people for nothing? You know, that was it was a screwy it's called deal. tax. <laughs> it was a, it was a it, no. Basically, it the entire law called the Affordable Health Care Act was unconstitutional, and it should have been called that what it was. Okay, and and there were several arguments for why that was the case, not just the tax deal. Mm-hmm. But anyway, well, aspects of it were determined to be unconstitutional and they were dismantled and other aspects were found to be within the reins of the Constitution. And so those pieces have remained. Uh, 
one of which forcing the states to use it. States are not forced to use it. So if you live in a fairly conservative state, it may not even be offered anymore. Whereas in California, it very much is because California is a very liberal state uh, overall, which is ironic because if you actually look at the makeup of the state um, and the actual voting, it's actually fairly close. It just seemed, it, it just falls on the liberal side excuse me, more regularly because people think of Orange County as the conservative part. But, you know, San Diego has had um, Republican uh, mayors, and in fact, one of their mayors became a Republican um, uh, governor, as well as um, the central part of the state. But the central part of the state is largely um, uh, a lot of um, uh, very blue-collar jobs. You know, these are people who work farms and stuff, and it's more sparsely populated. Even though it's a large physical area, there's not as many people as there are sitting in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And those are the two big centers of liberalism. And those are the population centers. So, yep, you know, but, you know, it's it's almost it's uh, almost a microcosm of the country because, you know, California and New York are sort of the two coasts. And those are the big bastions of liberalism. And in California, the coast is the really liberal areas. and, And you come inland and. And, and you find that there's much more conservative thinking there. So it's all interesting. There'll be a, a um, debate on Tuesday night if you are interested in watching. I didn't I'll watch any watch. of the... I'm going to watch the debates. I did not watch any of the of the um, uh, conventions because I thought that was all just, you know, that's all just blustering and marketing. And I, just, I wanted nothing to do with that. But when you actually get to have two guys there and force them to talk to each other or talk at each other... I think that's probably more accurate. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll watch yeah. that because I'm interested to see, you know, responses and facial expressions and things like that. So, so anyhow, we went way, way, way off of technology today, but we did cover some of the cool stuff that we la- uh, didn't record last Monday. So I'm glad we covered that. So thanks for joining us. Um, hope you have a great week. And if I don't talk to you sooner, um, I'll talk to you next Monday. Okay, Todd. Enjoyed it. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.